Baseline here's from Professor Armstrong with a guy named Fatty. Who better to talk about losing weight and keeping it off? And it's a bike buyer's market. We'll tell you who is cutting prices. The Paceline, the podcast on two wheels, is on the clock, making splits, hitting the lap button. Fatcyclist.com, a big supporter of the Paceline, and its namesake, Fatty, is of course with us. Yeah, you know, in that uh, opening, I'm not sure that the keeping it off part is going to be completely accurate. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll have a chance to let us know what the scale says. Oh, boy. The Pace Line has a home on the pages of redkiteprayer.com. RKP's Patrick Brady is here. And back from L.A. Back from SoCal. Yes, you're back in Sonoma County. After a trip to Southern California, and we want to talk about this in our first segment here, the Malibu Grand Fondo, which we previewed in the previous show, um, you managed to get down here and got some of it in, I hear. There were some hiccups along the way, but tell us about your trip and the Grand Fondo. Well, so the Malibu Grand Fondo, um, A, I was invited to come down. Um, which is, you know, it's always nice when someone says, Hey, you know, we'd love to have you come join us for, for an event. Uh, invitations are a wonderful thing. The, the event was particularly interesting to me because it follows a really different format. Uh, first off, it's a small event. It was limited to 250 riders. Uh, it was also meant to be, shall we say a little upscale. The host hotel was the four seasons, uh, my wife climbed out of the car and was like, whoa, I'm kind of underdressed. And I was like, I told you it was the Four Seasons. She's like, I'll, I don't know. I was thinking Hilton. Uh, so, you know, nice digs. Um, and then uh, in addition to the, uh, what was it, 150-kilometer Fondo on Saturday, on Sunday, you had a choice of doing either a nice little social ride, sort of recovery ride, uh, or... Uh, a time, an individual time trial, um, 20 kilometers. And, uh, it was completely into a headwind. Um, so I opted for the recovery ride. Um, wait, 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 recovery ride. Well, what are you recovering from? You were recovering from now you got stuck on the way down to, to Malibu. So there was no ride the day of, right? Uh, the recovery ride. <laughs> you should have gone for the time trial, Patrick. Um, I didn't think that that was really. We'll go with fair. Uh, a guy with <laughs> a guy who didn't have 150 kilometers in his legs going for the individual time trial. Uh, I thought that that would kind of stink. Um, so yeah, I didn't make it for the fondo because my radiator gave up its ghost. Uh, halfway from San Francisco to L.A., uh, and we got to spend 25 less-than-glorious hours uh, just outside of Coalinga. Uh, I did find uh, a really decent and honest mechanic uh, to work on the car, um, and I now have a new radiator in my car. Um, but yeah, so I missed the Saturday ride. Uh, talked to people about it. I'd looked at the... Uh, at the course profile and, and map uh, beforehand, 
and was super impressed with it, partly because running a Fondo uh, in Malibu isn't easy because of the just how dangerous or difficult uh, the descents are. And I was like, well, what are they going to take people down? What are you going to do so that somebody doesn't get in over their heads? Uh, and they went down Potrero, uh, which is, you know, one of the, the least vicious of all those descents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they ended up uh, climbing back up Latigo and descending Westlake Boulevard uh, back into Westlake Village. Um, and uh, that's, you know, there are only a couple of kind of gnarly turns on that one. That's a, you know, pretty reasonable descent for the most part. Uh, one of the other things the Fondo did that caused me to really, you know, miss having uh, not ridden it uh, was the fact that they really made a big effort uh, to keep the group together. There were an awful lot of people present who, you know, hadn't done a lot of pack riding um, and, you know, didn't really understand how much how much more draft you get when you're in a group than if you're just on one other rider's wheel. Um, and so... Uh, the sponsoring shop, Sirius Cycling, uh, they brought out their team and they effectively acted as marshals out there. Uh, you know, a big pack of domestiques um, driving the pace up front, but keeping it reasonable um, and then monitoring the back, you know, to make sure that they pretty well kept everyone together. And so the the whole march down PCH uh, from Potrero uh, to Latigo, they did their best to kind of keep the pack together. Um, mm-hmm. it, That's super important too when you've got you know people paying a nice price to get into a nice event. They're not there to get dropped. They're not there to claw back on. They're there to have a good time and maybe be helped a little bit, be shown the ropes a little bit. They don't, people don't mind that. That's a that's a you know a, a smart thing that Serious Cycling did. Yeah, yeah. Well, and obviously the the promotional materials that they got out to people and their ride description really intrigued people uh, because I met people from uh, Chile, uh, Munich, um, let's see, where else? Uh, England. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there were some international riders there, uh, people from all over the U.S., rode with a woman from Connecticut. Uh, So this was something that, you know, if it pinged on somebody's radar... You know, they were willing to make a trip because it really did sound like something exceptional. And uh, they did a great job. Everybody I talked to uh, at the little uh, post-ride uh, gathering was just super pleased with the event. They really enjoyed it. They did a very fine job. And uh, also a shout out to Carlos Perez and Bike Monkey for coming down to do the timing on both the KOM and the time trial. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, Bike Monkey was there. Awesome. That's yep. cool. But unfortunately, you did 25 hours in Koalinga. Did you hook up with a group ride there? Uh, I'm going to go with no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get on my bike. For the folks who've, uh, yeah, for the folks who have no clue about Koalinga, it's essentially the, the center of California. It is halfway between L.A. and the Bay Area along the I-5 corridor. And the most significant landmark is not really one you see but smell <laughs> It is the yeah. cattle coming from Harris Ranch that are corralled up in pens and pooping all over themselves. And uh, the stench can uh, reach for miles around Koalinga. Uh, I don't know what the roads are. You had a bike with you, but uh, I, I imagine hooking up with, with anybody there for a ride was eh, 
Well, uh, you'd have been better off riding a, a cow, some cattle there. Yeah, I mean, this was the Harris Ranch exit, so you're not even in the town of Coalinga. You know, there are two motels, a couple of fast food restaurants. I mean, it, it's a dismal, dismal place. Mm-hmm. Well, we're glad you uh, made it home, made it, first of all, down to SoCal safe and made it back home safe and sound with family and everything else intact. And um, sounds like the Grand Fondo escaped. There was some weather in the area. Uh, yeah. El Nino has finally kicked in a little bit around here. I'm sure Sunday morning was rather gusty for the riders. Um, so, yeah, it was it was coolish and uh, misty slash drizzly at times for the riders is what I hear. And then, you know, once that front came through, uh, Sunday was crazy windy. And I for the folks doing the, the time trial, I really feel for them because, I mean, a 12-mile time trial – point to point one way into a headwind i just you know they didn't even get the benefit of getting you know getting out to point magoo and turning around and getting that tailwind uh for the other half of a time trial because they'd already completed the whole of the time trial hmm. and that's just a variety of suffering that i i really feel for those people yeah <laughs> it's like ow. oh good we're, we're glad the Grand Fondo got off anyhow because weather was a problem here over the weekend, but looks like it was uh, well-timed and everything went uh, smoothly outside of uh, the gusty winds. All right, the Malibu Grand Fondo in the books. Uh, more stuff, of course, is uh, picking up this time of year, though. We're going to have more rides to talk about here on the Pace Line. We want to move now to, um, well, you both went to college, right? Uh, you're both college graduates? We could call it that. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, lectures, uh, guest lecturers is always an interesting part of of going to school. In fact, I got a chance to speak before a class a couple weeks ago. It's a lot of fun. It's a good chance to hear a different perspective. The kids in a particular class at Colorado University have had two special guests recently. One of them, Travis Tiger, with the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, followed up by the man that Tiger famously went after, Lance Armstrong. Armstrong uh, was invited by Professor Roger Pilkey to speak to students at Pilkey's Introduction to Sports Governance course. Now, Pilkey's been critical of both Armstrong and USADA, but he had both of them come in to speak, you know, directly to some of his criticism. So this was, Tiger first came in, I think it was a week, two weeks ago, and then last week was, was Lance's turn. And there were plenty of topics, of course, covered by Armstrong, but most notably was uh, his discussion and his analysis, if you will, of USADA. Um, there was kids there taking notes, and some of them were even recording the incidents. We have some sound here, too, from the classroom for you. Uh, Lance said uh, he thought the anti-doping agency is necessary, but broken. They're probably one of the most ineffective and inefficient organizations in the world. The amount of money, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing, it just is what it is. I'm not criticizing Travis or the organization. But if you consider a budget of 10 or 15 or 20 million dollars a year, and then you lay that over the testing results, which come back at, you know, better than me, 0.2%, 0.7%, come back as positive, um, we know that that's not a realistic number. I don't know what the number is, whether it's 10 or 20 or 50, I don't know. That tells you that that system is broken too. 
So Lance sold the class because you saw this credibility was so weak, it decided to go after him to A, right a wrong, and B, restore people's faith in you. So you guys can jump in here anytime you want. I have, I have a few more cuts to make, uh, rather play. Um, but Lance said that he thought USADA had a specific motive about going after him. You know, to, to take this case and this example and bring it out, and, and many, plenty of people would say, well, we had to bring this out. We had to, we had to do this. Um, but to go back 10, 15 years uh, to bring a marquee case was, I don't know. I, I don't know how anybody in this room would feel. I don't know how John Elway would feel if they went back and, and, and stripped him of his 99 Super Bowl title. You might think that was crazy, wouldn't you? That's exactly what happened. Now, later, Armstrong uh, said if you ask the writers he competed against during those tours, they would all acknowledge him as the winner of uh, seven in a row. And Armstrong wonders why that is not taken into consideration uh, when you look at his record and whether or not he should have been stripped for what happened. You guys have uh, listened to some of the the sound and, and yeah. read some of what was reported out of that classroom. Uh, what did you two draw out of uh, Professor Lance's appearance? Well, well, go ahead, Elton. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting that he says, I'm not going to critique anyone, and then offers a pretty extensive critique. And I'm curious what his thinking is when he actually is giving a critique. So, you know, clear, clearly he is a very disciplined uh, speaker and presenter. And I thought that was actually the most curious and interesting thing about the whole thing. I don't know if there was anything that was truly new. His perspective on USADA is not new. Anything he said isn't new. And the fact that there are a lot of phrases that he's been using uh, recently is kind of interesting. In the Joe Rogan interview, which was very interesting and worth listening to, he uh, said had a variation of some, of exact phrasing he used in this one, where he said, a lot of people are saying, screw you, screw you forever. And I'm wondering, is he, is he actually going and having uh, certain phrases tested to see how they play with audiences? <laughs> I think this is just him falling back on his old media training. Um, yeah. Nike paid for media training around the... Uh, 96 tour dupont and then they uh they certainly provided him with a bunch more in slash and or around uh the 99 tour de france uh and i uh i've heard from other people that he got more over the years he became increasingly polished and i think he's just using that old training uh knowing that you know he needs uh you know good sound bites uh, mm -hmm. He needs, you know, just catchy little statements to get people to think. And he is good at it. I mean, that's yeah. one thing that has to be acknowledged, that Armstrong is always a fantastic interview, and he tells a great and compelling story. But to what end, I guess, is really the question that I have. Uh, what is his end game right now? You, uh, that's another thing that can be said of him. He never does anything without a purpose. And is that purpose right now to develop sympathy for him or to develop a, a new persona for him? I'm the guy who is a truth teller uh, about 
organizations that are being ineffective. I am the guy who is openly saying where the problems are. I, I mean, that seems like where it's headed. Is there anyone in the world who is willing to give him that label? You know, Lance Armstrong, truth teller. Yeah, and has he waited long enough to start this this campaign? Well, I mean, it's still fresh and still raw, is it not? Yeah, I I think you know once he lost control of the narrative, you know his ability to tell the story the way he wanted us to believe it, um, he's been kind of you know flailing ever since. You know, one of his primary points that you know USADA is inefficient. Um, I'm sorry, but he's part of why. When you look at their budget and then you look at how much of their budget they were spending on lawyers to adjudicate cases, I mean, the only conclusion any reasonable person can come to is, oh, they need a bigger budget. You know, Lance came with such a big defense. Um, Tyler Hamilton's was also pull out all the stops, you know, and those those two cases alone cost them huge amounts of money and reduced their ability to chase other doping. Um, I, you know, I was certainly critical of them, but, you know, it was one of those things where the belief was with Armstrong was that this was tip of the iceberg stuff, that he was the first of multiple dominoes. I don't know that it really played out that way, but uh, knocking him off was big and important, you know, and it's important to remember that in the course of that case, you know, they ended up uh, getting confessions from and, you know, administering suspensions uh, to four other guys, teammates of his. Uh, well, it, one exception, um, you know, former teammates of his. So, you know, they did get other stuff out of chasing that case. Yeah, and this is one of the things you do do if you have, we take Lance's argument that, look, you saw it had a limited budget, they needed to do something. Well, yes, this is exactly the type of thing you do do. You go after somebody that is going to, when you when you do catch them, that's going to send a message. Look, it's not like people haven't been singled out before. Remember Bernie Madoff? I mean, the mm-hmm. government went after that guy in a big way. Why? Because people would pay attention. Not just people, the public, but his peers would pay attention by the government going after Madoff. So, and look, as I, I used to cover uh, criminal courts quite a bit as a reporter, and I can't tell you how many times I sat in courtrooms and heard judges tell people who were convicted as they were sentencing them, I'm sentencing you to the maximum because I want to send a message. I want people to hear this loud and clear. And that's what USADA obviously was doing. And, and why should that surprise anyone, least of which Lance? Why is he surprised that he was made an example of? I mean, you're you're the one running around with seven jerseys, seven yellow jerseys. You, you've got the biggest target, buddy. I'm sorry. And so I got one more bite here from from uh, Armstrong on just that, that okay. topic about being targeted. If you have an organization that's struggling for credibility, and believe me, I mean, I was the complete dumbass that made it totally easy for them to do this, right? So this is all, this is my fault. I mean, I did, I did what I did. Our culture and our era did what we did. I took it so much farther, and that's really the the lesson for me in all this. I mean. To go back 20 years ago and question what a 25-year-old kid did in Europe when you showed up for a gunfight or a knife fight and everybody had guns, like, it was gnarly. But then once 
this ball started rolling and the success started, this wave started to be creative or created, uh, I was way too aggressive as a person. And so that's what enabled them to say, all right, this guy is way out of risky tips and we're going to make an example out of him. And that's what they did. You notice that there is not a single instance of the word cheating in what he said or a single instance of the word doping in there. He said, I did what I did, we did what we did, knives to gunfights, I was super aggressive. Um, yep. He never says, I cheated and others were cheating too. Or, and I'm going back to what we said in the last pace line where I said, let's stop using the word doping and start using the word cheating. That is what is really important here. And the message that I want to hear Armstrong give if he wants to be the truth teller is i was a cheater i'm sorry i'm not really interested in any other message he has to give i'm with you on that you know i don't he's had his opportunities numerous opportunities to just sit down and do the classic tell all and there are always conditions He's always got these strings, and he says it's always Tigert who's got strings. And Tigert's made it clear that he's willing to just sit down with a tape recorder and just let's go. Um, and there are always these strings that uh, Armstrong has or Armstrong's legal team has, and I think they're just designed to prevent that from actually happening. Uh, he could do so much for the sport if he simply sat down and told the story of you know everything that he has known and seen um and done you know uh and because he's not willing to do that his usefulness to cycling and anti-doping efforts are i you know to say they're limited isn't even accurate he's just kind of useless at this point well mm -hmm. to be clear there there still is a, there still is litigation going on involving him um, and, and his lawyers may be saying, hey, be careful with what you say because it could be used against us in this action. So, and that, But you're right. The muzzle needs to come off. And if he wants to talk, okay, let's talk. Let's, let's really open this thing up and hear about what was going on in that bus, in your hotel room, who, what, where, when. We want to know all of that, not just your spin and what you're willing to spill to us. And one yeah. other little thing to touch on uh, in this, uh, it's great to note that the, the CU Boulder class uh, is busy reading uh, Albergati and O'Connell's book wheelman. Um, you know, it, it contains one anecdote in there that I think is just utterly mind blowing and nobody ever talks about it. Uh, and I, I love repeating it to people every time I can. In the book, they talked to Jan Ulrich's trainer, the guy who was actually responsible with making sure he got you know the proper course of EPO. And he told either Albergati or O'Connell, whoever interviewed him, that in 2000 and 2001, Ulrich rode clean. He was not on any oxygen vector doping. But after getting his ass kicked by Armstrong two years in a row, his next trip back to the tour... He was back on oxygen vector doping. And so anytime that Armstrong wants to say we were all doing it, we found out that no, not everyone was doing it. Ulrich rode two years clean. Um, and to me, 
that's the thing. That shows us that there was the possibility of the tide turning after the 98 Festina debacle. Um, you know, at least one guy showed back up clean. Uh, and because of Armstrong, you know, everybody kind of looked around at them so, at each other and said, well, <laughs> I guess it's still on, boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Rogers from Cycling Tips was actually in this classroom um, and described kind of the session. This was a classroom setting. There were p- other people there, but only students were allowed to ask questions. And we still seem to get a lot out of it, but um, Neil described it uh, less of a press conference, you know, more of an open mic for Lance in this situation. Um, it uh, was part of curriculum. For the class, so this is an assignment for the classroom, and uh, some gen- some members of the general public were granted the opportunity during the fifteen minutes to ask a few questions. Neil said he had his hand up in the air, but was never selected by the CU staff to uh, handle the microphone and ask uh, Lance a question. So again, I think it gets back to uh, the controlling environment that kind of that kind of surrounds Mr. Armstrong. Okay, we're going to lighten things up next on the pace line, Fatty. This is going to be your time to shine. <laughs> or something. This idea that, that I was the biggest fraud in the history of sport is just not true. When was the last time you heard a cyclist say, I'm going to put on some extra mass this year. I'm going to bulk up, work my biceps, eat more pizza, get on a donut habit. The Pace Line, Fatty, Patrick Brady, Michael Houghton, and, you know, we're no better than most guys. And worse than some. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And, of course, we've, at one time or another, become weight-obsessed. We're going to talk about weight loss, guys, here uh, in this segment of the Pace Line. But first, let's do a little weigh-in. I want to hear from each of you. What was your maximum weight? How low have you gotten? And where are you now? Let's start off with the star of this segment, <laughs> Fatty. Oh, I wish I weren't the star of this segment. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, The reason I have a blog in the first place was because I wanted to lose some weight. I had been taking uh, steroids uh, because I had Bell's palsy and had packed on 40 pounds in a relatively brief period of time. Um, and it, um, I, I was up at 194 when I started. And how tall are you? 11 years ago, five foot seven. Wow. So, you know, I, I, you know, to anyone but a cyclist, you would have said I looked a little pudgy. For a cyclist, someone who prides himself on climbing, I was, in fact, a fat cyclist, and hence the blog. The lowest I've been since I started the blog is 154 pounds. Mm-hmm. I am currently 166 pounds. Mm-hmm. So you there could, you go. That, that a comfortable weight for you? No, you feel about right there. No, no. <laughs> I'm you no. know. Hey, I'm you know, and I started the blog before I was even in my 40s. Right, I, I was 39 when I started the blog. Now I am 49, and so I expect my bottom end weight to be different. But mm-hmm. 166 for a five foot seven guy is not the you know that's not the weight a climber is needs to be at. 
I okay. am I'm looking for 157 by the time I start racing in earnest. So I got nine okay. pounds to lose. All right, Patrick Brady, yep. get on the scale. Um, well, let's see. In my first year of graduate school, I mean, this is when I was 25. I got up to 175 pounds. That's the heaviest I've ever been in my whole life. Now, that's I mean, that's 27 Ice. years ago. Yeah, uh, I'm five foot eleven. I used to be six foot. Um, gravity, you know. <laughs> um, more, uh, more relevant is the fact that with the move this past summer, I got up to 169 pounds, which is the heaviest I've been um, in, you know, well, the second heaviest I've ever been. Uh, certainly the heaviest I've been in 20 years. Um, and since then, I have taken off 14 pounds. I'm 155 pounds right now. Wow. Now Dude, it's handy. Wow. You it's don't handy even get to be part of this fat. conversation. <laughs> Just go sit down. You don't get to be part of this talk. Who are you, Baloki? Come on. Okay. <laughs> My turn. Uh, Michael Houghton, age 52. I'm six foot one. Um, before I was a cyclist, I was a golfer. <clears throat> uh, you know what that means. Cigars and beer and... Uh, oh, I walked, but... Um, didn't certainly no aerobic anaerobic activity to any to any degree. I got up to at six foot one, two hundred and one pound. Two hundred two. I want to see a that picture. Was, yeah, that was my peak. Legit and, Clydesdale. Uh, what's that? You were a legit Clydesdale. Yes, I was. Yeah. I was. Uh, that did motivate me to find a gym and a gym membership, um, and I started dropping weight, lifting weights. And I, you know, I settled in at 180 for a while, and then I got on the bicycle, and really started peeling off the pounds. Um, started riding in groups and racing a little bit, and then got serious about endurance riding. Um, and heading into the summer of 2011, I was teetering right above or right below the 150 mark, pretty consistently. Wow. Um, I was waif. Six foot one, 149 is pretty darn thin. Um, yes, I was getting a lot of comments. I looked like a skeleton at that point. Um, I got to a point, I think, where I was weak, too. Um, so um, I decided that that really wasn't a great racing or competitive weight. Um, so uh, right now, I'm probably 167-ish. 168, it's been a few days since I've been on the scale. Uh, ideally, wow. uh, I think my best climbing and best racing is done right around 160. A little below, a little below. Uh, so, a little above, a little below, right in there. So you are a half foot taller and the same weight as me. You guys, you guys don't get to even talk about weight loss. You just don't. Okay? Let, let me just add. I'm here who is normal. Well, let me just add for everyone who's never actually seen a photo of Michael. He is the leanest person I know. Uh, Just shut up. I, I get, I do get comments. <laughs> I do get comments like, hey, hottie, eat a pizza uh, is a pretty typical one. Phlebotomists um, love and, this guy. And even when I'm, even right now when I'm carrying some extra weight, what I would consider extra weight, um, there are, there are some comments. So naturally, yeah, the, the genes, the DNA I have help quite a bit. And, um, I don't, even when I was fatty, even when I was 200 plus, I, I didn't get 
there were, there was no comment on on that end of the spectrum either. That hey, you look a little heavy, or you seem to be carrying some. No one ever said anything then. Just, people said, oh, you look fine. And they, they folks couldn't really tell so much. So mm-hmm. I'm very 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 lucky in that way. But like anybody, weight loss means something to me when it comes to bicycle performance. So let's circle back now, Fatty. You uh, obviously designed an entire blog around this endeavor, which. Is magnificent. I think it's great. Or sad. But, uh, g- give us give us some of your reasonable weight loss tips that you that you would pass on to someone. Okay, so I would say the biggest numero uno weight loss tip is don't eat after dinner. After six thirty p.m., you're done. When I am able to hold myself to that, that is when I'm able to get to decent weight. Second one would be carbs are for big efforts. Um, Stay away from carbs if you are not on the bike. Uh, Third one would be uh, stop eating so much. (laughs) (laughs) No, portion control matters. You know, it's, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not necessary to eat until you're full. And when I am able to just do those three things, I do okay. You know, I am never going to be the skinniest guy, but I'm a powerful rider and I am able to sort of make up for weight with uh, a surprisingly high number of watts for my height. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your ideal race weight is what? If I'm at 155, I am perfect. I am strong and I am able to go all day. Uh, if I am any lighter than that, then I start noticing that my power band uh, it kind of slacks off uh, before I would like it to. Any heavier than that, and you know my uh, my climb times uh, go mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, do you expect that you'll make your weight goal um, in time for your first climbing event? Oh well, my first event of the year is one week from when we are recording this, and it will actually be two days after this is out. So the answer for that would be no. no. Um, that I am doing the True Grit this Saturday. Um, okay. After that, it is event after event after event, and I will ride a lot of this weight off. However. I have not been super serious about weight loss this year. Um, I've just been having a lot of fun and eating a lot of good food and have been putting weight loss off. So I have uh, I have some repentant to do, mm-hmm. about nine pounds worth of repentant. Yeah. Patrick, have you ever heard a weight loss tip that you've tried that you'd pass on to somebody else? How does it happen for you? Uh, <clears throat> I made... I made two, really just two changes to my diet uh, since, you know, the beginning of August. Uh, one, I really revised my alcohol intake. I'm not a big drinker, uh, but, you know, most every night I was having a glass of wine, glass and a half of wine or a beer with dinner. You know, not a lot. Um, I mean, you know, if I had three glasses of wine on a Saturday night, that was a big party night for me. Um, and so I just simply backed off on the alcohol. Um, I would go weeks without having any alcohol and then go out to dinner with somebody and, you know, permit myself a a glass of wine. Um, so I really revised my alcohol intake. And then the other thing came from the CEO of goo energy, 
Brian Vaughn, chief endurance officer. And okay, so yeah, actually, Michael, now that I think about it, I do know someone else who may be leaner than you, and that's Brian. Um, and that dude yeah, that is a total a specimen. Yeah, total <laughs> endurance machine. And uh, we were talking about. He's never it. beat me at Leadville, though. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. See you in a few months. See you, see you in a few months, Brian. What, what's that sound? Oh, that was a gauntlet hitting the ground in the background. <laughs> um, but uh, Brian said to me, and this is a, a variation of what you just said, Fatty. Uh, he said, eight to eight. Don't eat after eight. Don't eat breakfast before eight. A 12-hour fast. If you can do that, it'll really help. He's like, that's something that's worked for me. And it's like... What, when he lost two ounces last year? I, you know, um, but I did that, and those two things alone, uh, over what, four and a half, five months, 14 pounds. Nice. And I'm, I'm yep. you know, let me just add, I am amazed. I am so happy. Uh, I'm five pounds above my old race weight, and I don't think I really need to get back to there, but if I can work on power and maybe shed another couple pounds um for a guy who does not claim to be a racer anymore this will be one fun year <laughs> right uh the, the thing that worked for me uh was pretty simple ride more eat less um but the riding i made sure wasn't uh i tried to stay away from a lot of anaerobic work and mostly worked in that fat burning zone. Mm -hmm. um, and on long rides, um, especially if the pace was, I was assured that the pace would be in the aerobic zone, I could go out and do a hundred mile ride and not take in any food calories, just, just liquid, just drink and stay hydrated. And I do this on purpose to try and get the body to burn more fat. Again, you have to stay hmm. away from that carbohydrate burning area and just go out long slow distance and don't eat a thing um it's difficult oh but my uh, yeah god and it takes an incredible amount of discipline but you do want to carry a gel or something with you for emergency um but that was uh, <laughs> a, a quite effective way to lose a lot of weight quickly uh, Dang, yeah 100 mile ride wow yep um the, yeah well i love the the centuries because First of all, I love centuries for a couple reasons. I love seeing folks who bring four water bottles and stuff their pockets full of food when there's 800 aid stations along the way. <laughs> and second of all, centuries are just an invitation to gorge yourself. So if you go out and do a century, one of the challenges to, is to, to go through aid stations or skip them and ride at your aerobic level and not eat a thing for the whole century. Yep. And, but you have to ride at your aerobic level or you're in trouble. You're going you're gonna to be fainting before you know it. So... Um, it's a it's a test of of burning fat. Uh, I found uh, some great tips too from from other folks about uh, the best way to lose weight. And these come from some credible people too. Uh, Jeremy Horgan Kabelski, who nearly won the Leadville Trail 100, he's six one, goes in about 150 pounds. That's super light. He says, "Eat dinner like a pauper." He says the single biggest thing that has helped him lose weight has been eating a light dinner, even after a huge day on the bike. If he fueled properly through and after the ride, he can get away with just a light dinner afterwards. Here's one I love from Bettina Hold, five foot six, 125 pounds. She used to ride for Cheerwine. She says simply, chew more. So when you're eating, slow down, chew your food, enjoy it. Don't just swallow. 
Don't just inhale. I used to play a little trick on myself, not play, but I used to uh, incorporate a little trick where at work I would eat oatmeal with a knife and it kept me from shoveling food. I'm a shoveler. So it would keep me from shoveling spoonfuls of oatmeal in my mouth. And instead I would try to have to balance little scoops on a plastic knife and it slowed down my eating. I was still hungry all the time, but it, it seemed to work a little bit. I, you know, I once knew a coach who sort of as a joke to one of his athletes, he's like, oh, you want to you lose weight? Um, you know, eat quinoa. You can have as much quinoa as, as you want, uh, but you have to eat it one piece at a time. <laughs> I, I guess the idea was you, you were just going to get fed up with trying to pick up individual pieces of quinoa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tamara Mulefield, Trek VW team, eat at home. So obviously avoiding the fast food traps, the restaurant traps where they really just fill your plate up with two. You end up at the claim, I, no offense to Claim Jumper, it's a fabulous restaurant chain, but the amount of food that comes out on your plate at a Claim Jumper uh, may want to make you jump off a cliff. It's it's crazy. Uh, Christine Vadaros. Uh, says eat a lot of vegetables. That got her to lose about twelve pounds. Veggies seem to be the free ticket in the, in the world of eating. If you eat a lot of vegetables, or you can eat all the vegetables pretty much that you want that you can stomach. Uh, battered and, and not, deep fried. Yeah, battered <laughs> and deep fried, and not paid too much of a penalty. <laughs> so there's always somebody with a tip out there. Um, ride more, eat less. Is it seems like one that that works for a lot of people though. Uh, Fatty, you had a, a pretty interesting conversation with Bill Strickland from Bicycling Magazine. You guys covered a lot of topics on the Fatty Cast, but he did talk about early on in the discussion about how they have changed their attitude at bicycling from one of uh, kind of like shouting at people and telling them they had to lose weight to what where they are now. But for for a few minutes, or you guys talked about weight loss and the perception. Uh, people have of themselves and how mass media plays into that and what he did to change that. Here's a snippet from the fatty cast and an interview with Bill Strickland, uh, editor in chief of bicycling magazine. You know, one of the things I really knew I wanted to do this time was stop using cover models. You know, it was, it was almost, there was almost as like this parody of the bicycling cover model, right? Which was, it was, you know, just like this beautiful, man or woman and sort of really toned and maybe didn't look super comfortable on the bike and wasn't sweating. What we're doing now is all about the cover. It's like authentic and fun. And we're stopped shouting at people about losing weight. You know, yeah. I just, I, I found that kind of personally annoying, <laughs> uh, but you know, there are, there are repercussions. You know, why does, Every magazine on earth that's successful in the newsstand shout at you to lose weight because that really works with a certain amount of people. Sure. Uh, but, we, you know, what we've been able to say to the people who run Rodale and what they've understood is, like, if you let us talk to cyclists or people who look at their bike and they're like, I think I want to ride that thing. Those are people who already have an affinity for the sport and they love it. And if you let us talk to them, we're more likely to get them than if we're if we're telling them they're not good enough and yeah. they need to lose weight. And to be honest, those of us who think about the whole weight thing, uh, you know, with as a guy with the nickname of Fatty, 
um, you can guess uh, how much of my personal mental cycles are devoted to, you know, thinking about the weight issue and cycling. Um, but you know, your, those, your, your famous weight loss recipe there that you, you, you publish, your, your crazy diet. Oh yeah. Uh, egg whites and avocados. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, it, it works as long as you can do it. <laughs> That's the whole problem. When are you going to give up? How long did you last on a egg whites and avocados? Really? That's a uh, protein and some good fat. And that's about it. That's the diet. That's more or less it. And the thing is, I, I still do that. Um, but I don't do it three meals out of three anymore. I do eat egg whites and avocados, but now I also have egg yolks in there. I, uh, I, I invented the egg whites and avocados diet before doing any research at all. And I didn't realize that the yolks in eggs are really good for you. Um, so now it's just eggs and avocados. I, I do do a, a higher egg white to yolk ratio just because um, I don't need that many calories. But right. um, I, I generally do uh, two complete eggs and uh, an extra two egg whites. And that, it, uh, you know, fried, scrambled, made into an omelet, however I like, uh, with a lot of avocado partially just because I love that. I mean, I don't get sick of that flavor at all. There's nothing I like more than eggs and avocados. Mm. Um, it's easy to do. And if I can, if I can be good through, um, through the evening after dinner and do good portion control, I'm going to do okay. But you know, I'm, I'm not like you guys. It's, uh, you know, Patrick talks about uh, restricting alcohol content. I don't drink any alcohol at all. None. Um, I, you know, as far as, you know, the ride more, I've never done what you were talking about, Michael, the whole, um, you know, doing a century with no calories whatsoever. Uh, that's intriguing to me. I might do that as a stunt, but, I, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think that, I mean, that is intriguing, you know, and I, I try to, um, for, you know, I've done numerous half centuries, uh, calorie free. Um, so, you know, some interesting stuff here. It's, it's very intriguing. And I so think, what do you guys think about the, the, the media's, uh, what do you think about what Bill said about our influence on how people react to, um, the look of a cyclist, mm -hmm. the question of weight loss, um, is, is, do you think that approach he is taking is, Yes. Is he just blowing smoke? Is he just no. you know trying to make himself look good, or is that really an honest to good assessment of what has been going on in uh, the the bicycling magazine uh, publishing industry? The I, I don't think that there was any um, spin at all in there, and I, I think that Bill is being completely sincere in the way that he is approaching uh, bicycling magazine, and I think that the covers and the content reflect that. And a few years ago, Vela News uh, had a, a real uh, resurgence and became a great magazine where it had become a pretty bad magazine for a little while. And, you know, kudos to Neil Rogers on that. Um, I think Bill is doing that right now with bicycling. Um, the dogs cover, oh, that was so fun. And the one, um, the previous one, uh, or one of the previous ones, I think they won an award for it where there was a you know a cyclist uh, no t-shirt 
on a sort of on a cruiser doing a, a power skid, uh, you know, to come to a stop. You know, just a awesome, awesome picture and a great look. So, um, and none of it's about you know guys in spandex and tights and kit and looking, you know, like Michael. <laughs> it's all. It's all um, more about the joy of writing, and it is such right. a pleasure to see that. And, and gone are the, the cover stories that say, you know, 10 tips to lose weight fast, you know, how to get as lean as uh, the top tour writers. Those, that's the thing he wants to, to move uh, at least off to the side, if not off the page altogether. And I say thumbs up. I yep. say way to go. That's that's awesome. I say let's let's talk to people about riding bikes and why it's fun to ride bikes. And you know what? You're going to lose weight if you ride. You're probably going to lose weight. That's the good news here. You don't have to put it in people's face, and you don't have to shame people for not for not achieving a certain weight goal. Just no. ride your bike. Yep, and it'll happen. And my weight loss and my weight loss efforts are all about me, and I care about you know wanting to race well. It's certainly not something that is necessary in order for me to enjoy riding my bike. I can ride. Well, the difference, the difference yeah. with you, Fatty, is you didn't shake it in people's face and go, I'm fatty and you're fatty too. So we <laughs> have to lose weight. You just went, I'm fatty and I'm going to lose weight. Watch me. Yeah. And here's how I did it. And here's how I put it back on. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is you're no longer fat, but you're stuck with this name. Oh, you know, at some point I stopped even associating uh, the nickname Fatty with anything but just being me. It's it's a term of endearment, and I appreciate it when people use it. Cool. Well, we are going to do – in fact, another segment we have planned for the Pace Line here is to talk about food again because we all love food. Uh, it's going to be a pre-race, pre-ride segment, how you get ready for a ride, including that pre-race or ride meal What's on your plate before you go out for a big one? That'll be a, a future pace line segment. So Ooh. somewhat weight related, which we love. Um, coming up, more interesting gear rumors and news and another big win for women in cycling on the pace line. We're back on the pace line. Fatty, Patrick, Michael going through the feed bag and several items in there today, boys. Uh, new Durace has shown up on Instagram. The next generation of Shimano Durace DI2 photographed Instagram. Got to be on social media. And it looks like Shimano is going with that stealth look. Now everything's got to be black, right? Uh, so they've got a stealthy black type finish to the components. Not much could be seen in the photo uh, what was pulled out was it looks like it's still 11 speed. Looks like it's still wired. Um, and other than that, um, not much else on a single photo from uh, some Durace product. But it showed up in Taipei, so it looks like Shimano's planning something at least for for Durace. Is that what you've heard, Patrick? Well, I haven't heard much at all. I studied the images, and I mean the thing is, this is a little bit like the 7900, the second generation uh, of 10 speed, where you know there weren't. There weren't many changes uh, in terms of, you know, what Durace does. So I'm thinking there's there's something we don't know about with this group just yet. Um, 
uh, I have heard from other sources that there will be three versions. Uh, mechanical rim brake, DI2 uh, rim brake, and then DI2 with disc brakes. So three versions. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be something more uh, to the function uh, there that we are not seeing because normally when Shimano introduces a new generation of Durace, there are some definite technical steps forward. Uh, so I think I think there's more to learn about this just yet. Hey guys, another fist pump for U.S. women on bikes. These ladies are pulling off an awesome year. Uh, U.S. Women's Team Pursuit took its first ever world title, riding to a time of four sixteen point eight to best Canada in the gold medal round at uh, World Track. It was the first title for any American Team Pursuit squad, male or female and came after the team set two new American records on their way to the final. They did it with the help of an 18-year-old phenom, Chloe Digert, who had raced in only one previous elite-level track event. The rest of the team, congratulations to Sarah Hammer, Jennifer Valent, and Caitlin Kelly. But uh, it seems like the uh, the 18-year-old is, is getting a lot of kudos with it. Man, it's really cool to see... You know, I think 2016, let's hope, uh, the year of women's cycling, it's starting to take some hold. They're having some great successes here. Well, it's an Olympic year, so they're going to get some attention. Uh, the sad thing will be 2017 when all the women's sponsors will pull out again. So they're facing financial uh, a financial deadline at this point, the women's Well, team? it's just traditionally uh, there will be a big push in women's cycling uh, during the year of a Summer Olympics. And they'll get a lot of resources that year, and then all those resources will dry up the very next year. What would really be nice to see is for all the current sponsors who are in women's cycling right now sign contracts, you know, for the next five years so that they know, oh, yeah, we're not going to be starving next year. You are such a cynic. (laughs) You know, it's been (laughs) happening since the 1980s. Okay, with that, the pace line has uh, crossed the finish line. But before we go, let's find out from Fatty what's happening at FatCyclist.com and on the FattyCast. On the FattyCast, I've got one of the most interesting interviews you will have. I, I think it's going to be your new favorite one, Patrick. I'm talking with Paul Guillo, who is the producer and writer of a cool new television show. And cycling played a huge part in him getting this very cool new show. On the uh, fatcyclist.com, look for a, a pretty important, uh, in parentheses, just kidding, uh, post about the correct speed you should be riding. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, and Patrick, Red Kite Prayer, we'll be rolling out some uh, reviews, I imagine. Yeah, we've been stacking up a few reviews, some helmet stuff, uh, two bike reviews. Uh, I've got my work cut out for me. Okay, excellent. Um, and uh, catch up on any uh, North American Handmade Bike Show stuff you may have missed. It's also on Red Kite Prayer. Uh, I've been continuing to read that stuff, Patrick. Really good. Great pictures. Thanks for those. Love all the uh, the bike art that's up there. Uh, also on redkiteprayer.com, you can find this show along with notes and links for the Pace Line. This, pay, uh, this podcast, it is, can also be found on iTunes and Stitcher. Stay up with things by following us on Twitter at Paceline Podcast or the Red Kite Prayer Facebook page. For Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Houghton, and we'll talk to you next time on the Paceline.